Hi, my name is Daniel Tamari and welcome to another episode at Focal Point. Today we're delighted to be joined by Laurent Haziza. Laura is the Managing Director uh, and Global Head of Financial Sponsors at Rothschild & Co. Laurent, how are you doing today? Uh, good morning, Daniel. Uh, very well. Thank you uh, very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Great. Could you sort of perhaps kind of tell us a bit about your background and your career, how you joined Rothschild? So I've been at Rothschild for 22 years, where uh, I founded the Financial Sponsors uh, Advisory Practice. Prior to that, uh, I spent 10 years in various firms in, uh, in investment banking. So I started at Dillon Reed and I was on campus at the LSE, interviewed with a few firms um, uh, through the mill ground. I had no idea what investment banking was about, but I was intrigued and got an offer. And 32 years later, here we are. That's great. Can you tell us a bit about sort of how the, the FSG team sort of interacts um, with sort of like the different sector teams? and the leverage finance team in the bank? Uh, good question. Initially, when I started, I had a, a dedicated uh, financial sponsors uh, team supporting me. And in, uh, in view of the unprecedented growth of private equity, our then chief executive, Nigel Higgins, who uh, today is chairman of Barclays Bank, sat down with me and said, Laurent, how, you know, how do we deal with this growth? You have a team of you know, 15 people. I think you should have a team of 50 people. And I took that away and told him that, in my view, there was a danger of creating a, another silo, which would not be the best way to serve his clients. And therefore, we had to adopt a model which would enable us, uh, the whole of uh, general advisory, to embrace private equity across sectors, products, and geographies. As a result, we adopted a senior banker coverage-led model. So basically, we disbanded the team, which was um, an interesting decision, probably the best decision I ever made. And we had, we created a group of senior bankers in charge of private equity relationships and working with the relevant sectors and products, you know, depending on the situations, the, the mandate that, um, that we were handling. And, and I have to say, with the benefit of hindsight, it, it worked extremely well. That's great to hear. If you had to sort of pitch sponsors as a team, what would sort of like, kind of like, how would you pitch it? What, what would they sort of gain? Well, what I'd say is that uh, financial sponsors is the last bastion of uh, generalist investment banking, point number one. As, as, as you may uh, be aware, our industry has moved towards uh, sector specialization. Mm -hmm. Most bankers uh, work in a sector. Mm. Um, so if you enjoy the variety of uh, working in different sectors, um, financial sponsors uh, is the place to be. 
That's point number one uh, in giving you an answer. The second point is the clients. Private equity clients are entrepreneurial, highly analytical, um, and in our industry, clients become friends. So if you like this type of profile, mm. then uh, joining a financial sponsors group um, would serve you well. It's very important to develop personal relationships, empathy uh, with clients. So you have to like them and, and, and you want them to like you. That's great to hear. In terms of like you're talking about sort of more opportunistic deals, um, obviously we've had now uh, like in the last uh, week or so, we've had a second uh, rate rise from Bank of England, from the Fed. Um, and so we're obviously projected to have sort of further rate rises this year, obviously with lots of tensions in, in, in Ukraine and Russia. Um, it, are these rate rises significant yet in sort of magnitude? Um, are sort of P firms looking to sort of position themselves strategically perhaps a bit differently, or is it just not large enough to be of a concern yet? I think it is a concern. Uh, it is a concern, it, and, and it is a reflection of, you know, increasing inflation, uh, which, you know, is back into the economic system after, uh, you know, the sort of uh, COVID uh, reflationary uh, measures, unprecedented public spending. Um, and now obviously there is a war uh, in Ukraine. So it, it, it's not possible to ignore. At the same time, I think the view perhaps uh, optimistically continues to be that this return of inflation is transitory and uh, not something which is destined to stay for the foreseeable future. So we'll, you know, we'll have to see. It creates uh, a dislocation uh, at the moment, in particular in the context of uh, the, the, the conflict in Ukraine, mm. in the debt market. So to that extent, yeah. it does impact private equity. But... The asset class is, is a long-term, you know, uh, driven uh, investment asset mm. class, um, which is meant to invest through the cycle. And therefore, I remain optimistic about uh, private equity's ability to continue to make good investments in, in more challenging times. Sure. Well, sort of the kind of, recent developments uh, in sort of, kind of the last year or two or so um, has been sort of the decision of a number of leading private equity firms to go public. Um, recently, kind of there was the news of uh, one of the leading European firms deciding that they were probably going to list in Amsterdam. Does that affect your work as, as an intermediary working with firms who are now listed? Do you sort of see some of the, the sort of smaller mid-cap houses sort of following suit, or do you think it's only a sort of a trend that's limited to the larger mega funds? You're right. This is an important uh, phenomenon, uh, which is the expression of the institutionalization of private equity and of private capital uh, more broadly. So today, private capital accounts for some $7 trillion of mm. invested uh, capital. 
And therefore, um, you know, to some extent, it's not surprising that uh, a number of the larger players uh, have decided to go public. Um, it reflects, number one, which is not always talked about, uh, but important nonetheless, you know, the need to address succession issues. So a lot of the private equity firms have uh, founders who, um, you know, at some point um, uh, need to uh, address uh, their succession whilst preserving uh, the permanence of the business that they have created. Going public is, um, is a good solution. Mm. Um, what I would also say is that it does raise questions of you know, alignment of interest because yeah. when yeah. a private equity firm goes public, it, uh, it needs to triangulate alignment, uh, not only with limited partners, but also with shareholders. So this raises, you know, interesting questions. I think that firms like Blackstone have proven that they can continue to perform exceptionally well, uh, despite their scale yeah. and despite being public. But Alignment of interest is always um, an important consideration. And obviously, those who don't go public will say the listed uh, GPs or sponsors yeah. uh, have become asset gatherers who are really looking for management fees rather yeah. than, you know, outsized performance. So my view is that this is a phenomenon which will be, by and large, centered around the larger firms, if only because you need liquidity when you go public, and that the dominant private equity model will continue to be private, which is probably a good thing. That makes sense. Kind of moving on to sort of um, one of another developments in, in private equity has been sort of the rise of continuation funds where a fund will sell a, uh, a portfolio firm within sort of the, the overall fund to a new vehicle uh, within the same fund. Is this real value creation? Um, a very good question. This is one of the, the more creative and recent developments uh, in private equity. And it addresses one of the limitations of private equity, which is typically structured around a 10-year limited partnership agreement. Mm. So there is a finite life um, around any private equity investment. And what the continuation vehicle does is that it provides a life extension for a particular investment through the creation of you know, a special purpose vehicle, mm. which will attract new investors, but also give existing investors, if they so wish, to remain invested in a particular company based on their appetite for the next leg of the journey. What I find very interesting is that many companies that follow that route effectively reach a point where 
they're going to enter a phase of transition because the business, for instance, is facing new challenges or new opportunities. And these things take time. So the continuation vehicle provides a, a pretty neat solution to help those companies address these opportunities and or challenges. So that's one uh, consideration. The other consideration is that very often high-quality private equity-owned companies tend to be sold to another private equity company. The continuation vehicle effectively enables uh, the general partner to extend his ownership Mm. of a particular company rather than sell it to a competitor. Yeah. And, you know, there is a, a interesting financial engineering involved, which enables the crystallization of carried interest around the formation of an SPV. Yeah. And therefore, it, it, you know, it seems to be quite a neat solution in a number of cases, particularly for strong uh, performing, uh, strongly performing portfolio companies. With sort of like the, the sort of um, the rise of private equity dry powder and with, I guess, a bit increasing competition within the sector that has driven up valuations, do you see this as sort of a continuing trend where funds kind of see these sort of prize, you know, crown jewel assets and they don't want to let them go even if they do get a good price for it for, because they just don't want to see it go to their competitor across the road? So the short answer is yes. This is a trend that um, I expect to, to continue. You know, in absolute terms, it's still a, a fairly uh, minor segment of the overall uh, private equity activity, uh, less than 100 billion. But this will continue to, to grow because it makes sense. And in fact, it addresses you know, some of the limitations yeah. around the traditional 10-year limited partnership uh, structure. That sounds good. Could you talk to us about some of the developments that are happening in, in private equity concerning its relationship to ESG, number of, um, especially now with sort of the conflict going on, and, and more generally, as private equity firms sort of expanding their reach around the world, they're having to sort of come into sort of perhaps social and governance issues that they didn't really have to deal with before when dealing with sort of more traditional companies. How are they sort of adapting uh, to this sort of a change and sort of looking to make sure that they can position themselves correctly? This is a very important development in private equity. And what I would say is that uh, private equity has embraced, um, you know, proactively this progressive agenda. I mean, private equity is part of the economy, is part of society, and therefore issues relating to environment, to social questions of treatment of minorities, gender equality, and, and governance are very much front of mind. I think it's also important to bear in mind that private equity firms manage assets and capital on behalf of investors. A lot of these investors are institutions, pension funds, insurance companies, endowments. 
who have such ESG considerations at the top of their agenda. And yeah. therefore, it's no surprise that private equity is being very proactive uh, on that front. So I, I think that um, you can expect uh, sort of best-in-class behavior from many private equity funds on that front. That's great. Ambassador, if I question to sort of round things off, how does Rothschild differentiate itself within the financial sponsor space? Our main differentiation is uh, that we're independent and we only provide advice as opposed to financing. We provide financing advice, often staple to M&A advice, but we were independent. So the only capital that we have is intellectual capital. We don't have a balance sheet and that is, you know, the hallmark of uh, our differentiated proposition to our clients. We offer expertise, we offer experience, but we don't offer money. We don't sell products. That makes sense. Well, it's been great to have you. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been very interesting and I think all our viewers will have learned a lot. So I hope you have a great day. Well, thank you very much, Danielle, and I hope that um, uh, the members of the Focal Point um, uh, will enjoy it. And obviously, I'm more than happy to answer any questions. If uh, any of them uh, wishes to uh, reach out to me, I'll be available. I'm a former LSE student myself, and so every opportunity to reconnect with the school is, um, is a source of, uh, of joy for me. That's great.